On this episode, we go back to World War I to stop the Nazis from building the ultimate doomsday machine. Grab your whip for a death-defying episode of Sega Talk. Segabits presents Sega Talk, a podcast talking all things with your hosts, George and Barry. Welcome to episode 122 of Sega Talk. I'm Barry. With me is George. Hello, everyone. Am I like round? What's his, what's his sidekick's name? You're, the Asian guy. You're my short. You're my short. Short. Round. Short round. There you go. That was his name. Yeah. I'm short round. But we. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what a name. Uh, and yeah. So on this episode, we are going to be talking about Instruments of Chaos, starring Young Indiana Jones. But before we get into that. I want George to plug it in by telling y'all about our Patreon. Hey, idiot, check this out. There's a website called patreon.com slash segabits where you can support this show for as little as a, as, as little as a dollar a month. That's you true. could get this audio podcast early. And if you pay $5 or more, you could get the video version of the podcast and see our beautiful mugs early. And if you pay $20, you could tell us what to, you know, talk about. And hopefully it's not Indiana Jones related because I'm done with all this indie talk. Um, and We just started. <laughs> I know. I'm already done. I'm already done. Wow. Indiana, okay, well, first of all, check us out on Patreon. We love you guys. We love the support. Uh, I'm just joking. I actually like some of the Indiana Jones movies. <clears throat> Two of the movies, and um, I uh-huh. go, go on. I was well, I was done. I I have a challenge out there. So if you are a twenty dollar or more uh, tier person, I want you to pick Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade for the Sega Genesis, just to bother George, because that's the only other game I think that we can we can talk about in the franchise uh, right. as a Sega connection. So there you go. Um, and you have to be a new a new person, not one of the oldies. You have to be a new person. So if so. like one of the old people were like, oh yeah, I want to do that Indiana Jones, you'd be like, nope, sorry, and then delete their post? Well, they know that it's to <laughs> troll you, but it's also okay. incentive for like a new person to come on and bother you. So you got to uh, act really annoyed when it happens. You go, oh man, shoot. Darn. Uh, gee golly. <laughs> gee golly. Uh, so let's dive into it. So yeah. This game is actually based on the TV series, The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Instruments of Chaos, starring Young Indiana Jones, was an action game for the Sega Genesis and Mega Drive released in 1994. The Genesis version released to the U.S. and Brazil, and the Mega Drive version released by way of an Asian release, which was meant for every Asian territory except Japan and Korea. And it like specifically says that on the box. It's like, not for Japan or Korea. Like, don't touch this. Um, wow. I mean, maybe like if if you're Japanese or Korean, you open it and then your face melts or something. That'd be kind of cool. That would um, be pretty cool. The developers behind the game were Brian A. Rice Incorporated and Watermelon. Watermelon? I think I spelled that wrong. I'll get back to that. Design. Uh, what? Water? Walter? Walter Melon. Hmm. 
Uh, it had begun development in August 1992 under the title Young Indiana Jones. A Sega CD version was in the works in July 1993, but it was never published. So before we talk about all things Indiana Jones, I wanted to hear your thoughts on licensed games in the early 90s, because I know that was like the glory days of licensed games. Um, do you have any positive or negative feelings towards them, and do you have any favorites? I think the, the well, the arcades, you know, the TMNT, the Simpsons, the Konami stuff was pretty classic. I think everyone that's ever played them could be like, yeah, everyone liked those. Um, but for every good one, there was always a lot of stuff you wish was good, and then you, like, go, and then you rent it, or... Me, it was mostly rent, like... I would rent game like a lot of the licensed games because I knew they were bad, but I really wanted them to be good. So it'd be like, um, oh, well, The Simpsons is an easy one. Like I always wish the Simpsons uh, console games, especially the Genesis stuff, would be like a beat 'em up, something simple. And it's always like trying to be like a really bad platformer that is not really a platformer. You just move the character. Uh, Red right. and Stimpy is another one that I always wish was good when I when I uh, rented it, but it was always trash. Um, <laughs> so for e- every like really really good, excellent, uh, legendary uh, game, there's always like ten other bad licensed games. But it, it's it really makes you appreciate the TMNT franchise for having so many good games right. in its catalog. But yeah, what about you? Yeah, I. I distinctly remember like renting licensed games of tv shows like cartoons that i loved and then being so excited because like uh you mentioned ren and stimpy there was a beavis and butthead game oh yeah uh simpsons games like sure like now they obviously don't look like animated cartoons but back then like you put in that beavis and butthead game and it was the closest thing to playing an animated cartoon on your tv it was just wild and then you realize the game itself is not that good. <laughs> right. And, um, or in the case of The Simpsons, like none of those games were really good. They were all awful. Um, right. Re- really, maybe until The Simpsons game came out in like the 2000s. But um, yeah, I, I do remember like picking up on the fact that some games had uh, developers behind them. Like I learned pretty quickly that Konami was good, and then I saw Konami made. Ninja Turtle games, and I was like, well, these must be good. Same with um, any of the Disney Interactive stuff, uh, any of the Sega-developed Mickey games, any of the... um, Man, what's that other one? There was some really good ones. Oh, Capcom developed Disney games. Oh, yeah. So there there were good ones, but yeah, it was always really crushing. I, I think the worst one I ever played was Back to the Future 3 on the Genesis. Oh, Um, yeah. It, like... This game, the game we're going to talk about tonight, is difficult, but um, Back to the Future 3 has nothing. (laughs) You know, like, this has nothing on Back to the Future 3. That is one of the hardest games I have ever played. I've never seen the second stage. It's so hard. Uh, Uh, I played Back to the Future on the NES, and that was pretty bad. So I I could just imagine mm. they didn't get better. They're like, oh, we're going to make part three. We should be worse than we were back then. Well, what's so bizarre is it kicks off with a stage where you're riding a horse, which jumps over a lot of the opening of the movie, and then that's all you play because it's so difficult. It's it's um, it's like a scrolling stage, you know what I mean? So you gotta mm-hmm. like jump, 
duck, shoot, and it's so difficult, and you die. And then you realize there's a whole other portion of the game you're never seeing because you're only playing that. And I think a lot of licensed games fell into that trap. I don't know what was going on in developers' heads where they're like, oh, let's let's make a game based, based on a beloved franchise, but let's make it extremely hard. Like, I, I don't understand how you can test the game with people and they go, yeah, this is good. Put this out there. Um, yeah, and I don't know. Like, you, you were talking about Beavis and Butthead and Ren and Stimpy. They were basically the same game, right? Like, they would always make these games where you just move forward and then try not to get hit. That was right. kind of like the whole thing. Hated that, right. but yeah. Yeah, it, Worst it was one, bad. Worst one is uh, Back to the Future 3. I think so. Check it out. Check out videos of it. Like, no no one likes it. <laughs> Nobody. Um, I think the best one is, at least on the Genesis, is Ghostbusters. I think that one's really fun. And then any of the Mickey ones. Um, and surprise, surprise, it's all, like, Sega-developed. <laughs> so, right. Um, you know. Or or in the case of Ghostbusters, it was... Um, uh, uh, compile? Compile, but, yeah, but yeah. Sega bought them, basically. So. Right. Um, so yeah, so before we discuss the game, let's talk about the franchise that it's based on. The Indiana Jones franchise charts its beginnings back to, uh, 1973 when George Lucas wrote The Adventures of Indiana Smith. And like Star Wars, the story drew inspiration from classic movie serials that Lucas had grown up watching. In 1977, and I think this is kind of funny... Uh, after the release of Star Wars, and this was a tradition between them two, the two of them, Lucas and Steven Spielberg would basically go on a vacation so they didn't have to like deal with all the BS of box office numbers and like if the movie's getting good reviews or not. They would just hang out. And this is before Twitter, you know, so it's like they didn't need to leave the mobile phone at home. They just like go to a beach and no one can oh. bother them. Now with, um, the, you know, the limit, they don't have to worry about it. Exactly, yeah. Uh and while they were relaxing on the beach, Spielberg actually told Lucas that he wanted to make a James Bond movie. And he even went so far as, like, to, I think he was going to, like, pitch an idea to the producers of Bond at the time to bring Sean Connery back. That's what mm. I read. Which would be wild because I don't know if you know, like, where they were at at this time. But this was um, not Sean Connery's era. This was, uh, oh, man, I'm just blanking on his name. Roger Moore. So imagine that. Imagine if um, it's kind of like the equivalent, I guess, of like uh, uh, Keaton coming back as Batman. (laughs) You know, it's like or or uh, what's his name? Bronson coming back as 007. Like now. Yeah, it's like that. And I honestly, I, I I would both love to see Connery return back then and and uh, Brosnan come back now. Like that would have been awesome. But. What Lucas said to him was that he had an idea that was better than Bond. And he pitched the Indiana Smith idea. And it essentially became Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I'm wearing the shirt for. And Spielberg loved the concept. He called it James Bond without the hardware. Meaning it was really up to the, the character's grit and, you know, determination and not all these little gadgets and help from outside sources. Uh, the character's name eventually was changed from Smith to Jones, and then the two made a deal with Paramount Pictures for, and I always thought this was interesting, for five films. And if you know your indie history, they finally got around to making the fifth one <laughs> in right. 2023. It, it took a and, while. 
took it a took while. a while, and I I always wondered like is was that deal still on because the movie does have the Paramount Pictures logo on it, so who knows? Um, this uh, let's see. Oh, the series saw three films released before Young Indy kicked off. They were, of course, 1981's Raiders of the Lost Ark, 84's Temple of Doom, and 89's Last Crusade. So, George, what are your earliest memories of these films? Uh, I'd forgive you for not remembering because, like, 89 is the only one I think that both of us were alive for. Um, Right. And do you have a favorite of those original three? Uh, probably Temple of Doom. Um, but um, really, yeah, I don't know something about it. I liked, I, and I know, and I know it's like Raiders of the Lost Ark is good though. Um, I, I, I my history with it was um, so I grew up um with a very Spanish household, so my parents weren't really into these kind of stuff. So mm. my mom thought Star Wars was boring. She never, like, introduced me to Indiana Jones or anything. So when they used to have those, like, mail-order DVDs, I was like, well, I liked Star Wars, so I ordered the... They did, like, a box set with all mm-hmm. the films, and I yeah. bought them, and then I watched them, and uh, I enjoyed them. I thought they were great. Um, I know I, I tell you I hate the franchise as a joke, but uh, I had some fond memories of the original trilogy. Um, mm-hmm. And it's funny, though, because um, I also watched the fourth movie in my uh, when I was in college for uh, oh, Cinema yeah. Appreciate, appreciate, uh, Appreciation. They would do like a – you start from serials from the beginning, and, you, and the last movie we watched was uh, the fourth movie. And uh, – mm. I remember people after watching. I was like, "Oh, I had a good time." Blah blah blah. I think the only the only scene that I really cringed at really hard was the monkey and the CGI scene. I thought it went a little far. Mm. And then I rewatched the movie, and I could see why people had more complaints about it. But I thought it was a pretty fun movie, regardless of uh, the cringy moments. And I don't like, yeah, you know, uh, was that actor his son? I, they uh, Shia LaBeouf. Yeah, they could have re- they could have they could have just deleted all that, but. Uh, I think people were oversaturating though, but I, I will say, I remember vividly being in high school and this kid telling me about Indiana Jones and like hyping it all up. Uh, and we're, we were, cause we were both sick and we were in the office and we were waiting for the nurse and he comes up and he's like, blah, blah, blah. Talk. He, he literally laid out all these rumors about there being a Indiana Jones, uh, fourth film. And I don't mm. think it happened for like 15 years after, <laughs> after that conversation. <laughs> Because it took that long for that fourth film to come. I think it's probably been rumored probably since the late 80s, probably. I'm assuming right after the last the last movie came out, there was right, rumors right. about it. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's, that's my funny. whole that's my whole history with the Indiana Jones franchise, though. You? Wow. Uh, for me, I grew up, I believe we had the VHS tapes of Raiders of the Lost Ark and Last Crusade. We never owned Temple of Doom. And I think that really came down to, like, my dad's interests. I don't think he likes that one. Mm. But it kind of sucked for me because I want to watch all of them. And I only have two. So I really had to rely on, like, um, broadcasts, like, on the TV of the of the second movie if I could catch it or, like, renting it. Um, so oddly enough, like, I don't, even though it was the one released, like, the year I was born, I don't have that strong a connection to it just because I wasn't, it wasn't around me. Um uh, so, you know, at, at least two out of the three I had. Um, I was going to tell you that uh, 
in Young Indiana Jones, he actually does fight in the Mexican Revolution. So, oh, uh, well, maybe yeah. my parents would have liked it more if they saw Young Indy first. <laughs> exactly, um, but yeah, so I, you know, I, I watched them just as much as I would like Star Wars or Ghostbusters or Back to the Future. They were just like good, fun adventure movies to throw on whenever you wanted to watch them. Um, and you know, kids listening need to remember we didn't have streaming; we just had like a VHS library. And they were not big libraries. It was like a dozen movies we would just watch all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's what's crazy about right now with streaming. Like, they could make a epic movie like Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it would just be, all right, cool, what's the next <laughs> What's the next movie? And it would just go yeah. by the wayside. It's um, a I shame. F- I feel like that with a lot of shows where I'm like, damn, that was an amazing show. And then people talk about it for maybe like 48 hours, and then they're like... Anyway, this new show is back on. Right, right. Like, the, the show Barry, no one talks about it anymore. And it was, yeah. like, big. <laughs> yeah, it was incredible. It's an incredible show. The ending just happened not that long ago. Nobody cared. <laughs> it's like, nope, everyone they moved, moved on. on. They're like, what's the next show? Um, but, yeah, so let's talk about Young Indy. So, interestingly, Young Indiana Jones actually has a direct connection to the third film. So, in The Last Crusade, they not only introduced... Indy's dad, Henry Jones Sr., who was played by Sean Connery, which is kind of interesting because... Well, it's interesting because Spielberg wanted to make a Sean Connery Bond movie, like bring him back out of retirement. It didn't happen. Uh, But hey, they got him for Indy's dad. Um, But the movie actually kicks off with the first young Indy adventure, which featured an 18-year-old actor named River Phoenix playing a 13-year-old version of... Of the character. You never heard of him, huh? He was he the Joker? River Phoenix? River Phoenix? Let me I have to Google him. I'm thinking about the other Phoenix, right? Is that I his think brother? I, that's his brother. Yep. Okay. That's Joaquin oh. Phoenix's brother. Okay. Um so the movie also hints at events in Indy's past, including the death of his mother and him leaving home as his father says just when he was becoming interesting. And it was only a year later that Lucas set the wheels in motion for a TV series based on Indy's early life experiences, and he got the blessing from Harrison Ford and Spielberg to move forward with the series. Uh, But unfortunately, River Phoenix turned the role down, saying that he did not want to return to TV and instead wanted to focus on film, which is kind of unfortunate because the actor would have been the perfect age to play uh, an 18-year-old Indy at the time. He was um, 20, so it wouldn't have been that big of an age difference. But right. even more so, um, this role probably would have taken his life in a different direction. He unfortunately uh, died in L.A. in the street outside of a club called The Viper Room in 1993. Um, I, I would not listen to it personally. Like, I wouldn't tell anyone to listen to it, but there is a 911 call, Oof. I believe, from Joaquin Phoenix... Uh, telling police that his, you know, the medics, he's like, come here, my brother's dying on the sidewalk. It's really sad. Um, wow. And I actually, I went on a, a, it sounds morbid, but I went on a celebrity death tour when I visited L.A., and they drove us by the Viper Room, and yeah, that looks like a sad place to die. Right. Um, yeah, so we were young at the time. I'm, I'm assuming you don't remember hearing about this event. I do not remember hearing about this event, and I'm like trying to. I'm try, I, I literally had to Google them because I needed to know if their if their real last name is Phoenix, and it's not. It's like a Hollywood name, but still, sad. Yeah. But 
Yeah, his real name is Bottom. River Phoenix did. I mean, he had a short, but I think prolific career. He's kind of like seen as the um, James Dean of that era, Mm -hmm. you know, where he was hot, up and coming, and then just died tragically. Um, So it's it's unfortunate. Uh, Who knows what would have happened if he took the role for the show? I think I think the show would have been just as good, and I think he probably maybe would have lived. You know, who can say? we have a picture here, actually, of the actors, if you want to bring that up. Um, oh, let me uh, do that. There it is. Yeah, so uh, I believe that picture has... I don't have it open here, but it's like uh, the youngest one, so it's the little boy, and then mm-hmm. it's River Phoenix, and then it's the, uh, the, I guess, the teenager from this show, and then it's Harrison Ford, and then it's the old man. The old man, it just looks like him in the new movie. (laughs) A little bit. Uh, So yeah, so Lucas's vision for the series was actually Indy being played by three actors at different phases of his life. The series would end up seeing old Indy in his mid-90s, who was played by George Hall, who was actually an actor in his mid-70s at the time, under old age makeup. So it's a 70-year-old made up to look like a mid-90-year-old, which is kind of wild. Yeah. Um, and the each episode would be bookended by him telling a story in the present present day of the past. Uh, he would either tell stories from when he was nine years old or seventeen years old, and episodes would depict either actor Corey Carrier, who was the younger one, and then uh, playing Indy, who was on a world lecture tour with his mother and father and his tutor. Or a teenage indie played by actor Sean Patrick Flannery on adventures in Mexico, fighting in World War One, or attending college in Chicago. And I don't know if you've seen the Boondock Saints, but that's the actor from the, that movie. Oh. That's him. Uh, so broadcasters actually hated this idea. They wanted to just have one lead actor that they could promote as young Indiana Jones, but... Uh, Lucas pushed back. He wanted to jump around the timeline, and he was smart because what he did not want to do was start the series off and it's all young little boy indie, and then they cancel it, and they never get to do a second season. So he was like, well, let's jump around the timeline, and at the end of the first season, or the first episode order, we've basically told his childhood and his teenage years, and we don't have to hope for like a second or third season. Um It was also important to Lucas to showcase uh, Indy's love of learning and to use the series as a springboard for educating youth. Uh, The series itself was not edutainment, so it's not like the Sega Pico, you know? Right. (laughs) But um, it did showcase characters who were just excited by learning about history and the arts and imparted positive lessons about preservation, education, and human rights. Um, This, you know, like that stuff. Oh, right, yeah, caring, caring about people. God damn it. Damn, I um, hate it. I do too. Uh, this element of the series would come back in a big way in the 2000s, but I'll, I'll get to that at the end of the show. Um, so what do you think about this method of storytelling where you jump around a timeline? Uh, do you think that's a smart move for TV? Um, it makes. I guess it makes sense if you... I don't know, I... You know, I'm I'm going with the marketing people. I think sadly, uh, people want one good actor. I think it's hard enough to even get one good actor to play a kid. Mm. To get you know three of them, I could see why they hated it. But um, 
I've been watching that show uh, Yellow Jackets, and a lot of the show goes back from when they were kids and now. So there's like two right. actresses playing it. Um, so I, maybe just having two actors would have been good, like a teenager and a kid, instead of having this like middle middle version of him. Um, right. But overall, I, I like the idea because I don't think any sort of medium has ever done a character through his whole life like that. Like they did mm-hmm. Indiana Jones. So I think it makes it more interesting than it would be just like, can you imagine if they just try to do it? Like try to like get Indiana Jones and then make him for TV, then hire someone else to play uh, the character. And like, you know how they did it with those movies, like limitless had a TV show and like, right. I, I, yeah. Like they took the movie and they're like, we're going to make a TV show out of it and then hire some actor that looks nothing like the lead actor that, you know, <laughs> Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think it's a smart move for them because I mean, in as someone who actually watched the show as it aired, it was kind of like uh, eating like a box of candy with different flavors, and you're like, oh, what's tonight gonna be? And then you watch the episode, and then the next episode's previewed, and you're like, oh, we're getting a teenager ex- adventure next week. That'll be fun. And I think a show that is almost it's very close to how young Indiana Jones was is quantum leap. And if you've ever seen that, that was a really exciting show to watch at the time because it, you know, it was this character jumping into different historical figures, Mm -hmm. bodies, each episode, um, or not a historical figures, but like just people from different eras. And it was really exciting to be like, Oh, who are we going to see next week? Oh, it's the 1970s. And then the next week it's like the 1930s. And it was, um, it was just kind of, jumping around the timeline like that kind of shook it up each week. You still had characters that you recognized from previous episodes, but I don't know. I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun, and we actually have the uh, intro to the series, so let's check it out. All right, I'll play it. I like the intro. I think it's fun. Well, it's like all the pictures, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And are all these pictures actually, like, uh, in... Like, are are they part of the episodes or just random pictures we put for the background? No, so what they actually did was, while they were filming the series, um, they had a photographer on hand who would take pictures Mm -hmm. of the events. And... And then they use the pictures in the promotions of the series. Um, And I don't know if they do... No, I think they did do this for the broadcast versions. But at the end of the episode, they would show footage from the episodes, but filmed like at different angles, like a newsreel. So it would be like, if there was a scene in a dining room in the episode, at the end credits, you would just see a long shot of the dining room. But it was like black and white and kind of moving a little faster, like old footage. Um... So they were they were really smart, I think, in the production of it because they thought ahead. They went out and they filmed all these different countries, different actors, but then they came back and they put together this um, kind of grab bag of a series and all of those little pictures, it was exciting because you're like, who's that guy in the background? I've never seen him before. And then by like the fifth episode, you see him introduced and you're like, oh, it's that guy. And then he turns out to be like your favorite character in the entire series, <laughs> you know? Um, 
how long so do you, as, I was going to say, mm-hmm. how long do you think it's going to take for Disney to make an Indiana Jones uh, TV show for Disney Plus? That's a good question. Actually, <laughs> there was a rumored one of him in college, but I don't know if it's going to happen. Um, I do think with, uh, and I, I'm blanking on his name, but the actor who played Short Round, I think with his Oscar win, there's a very good chance that they might do like a six episode series with just starring him, you know, as Short mm-hmm. Round. I think that'd be kind of fun because he's he's such a lovable guy, um, right? And if you remember in in uh, Temple of Doom, Lao Che is the evil Chinese gangster. So you could have like Lao Che's son going after Short Round and for six episodes, that would be great. <laughs> you know, you think they would give um, it to him? I mean, the show. I don't know. That'd be interesting. I, I mean, know. Disney Plus is, seems to be like grasping for. Uh, I don't know. I. I'm just kind of over there. Uh, outside of uh, the Mandalorian and a few other select shows, I'm like they need mm-hmm. something. So I, I, I'm su- I, I'm surprised they haven't even they did they right. did a they did a Mighty Ducks show for crying out loud! Like they're... yeah, I mean you you know me, I'll watch any Star Wars show on there, but I've tried to watch the Marvel stuff. I've tried watching Secret Invasion, Dude. and I just yeah, can't I get into it. It's be- I don't know. You know Disney, like you can't make a, a a spy thriller and be Disney and try to be like, oh, I can't. We can't be. We can't take a side in a political message. You know how they are. Right, right, right. Uh, diving back in here now. Lucas's bet seemingly paid off. The series made its debut with the TV movie Young Indiana Jones and the Curse of the Jackal, which, in my opinion, expertly told a story of a missing Egyptian headpiece that weaves in a story from an 8-year-old indie, an 18-year-old indie, and a mid-90s indie, all while also staying true to the classic films and expanding on the character's history. Uh, As a debut, it whetted the appetite for viewers and promised a series that would offer up surprises each week with new locations, characters, and stories. The first season saw six episodes, released in the spring of 92 on ABC, and season two kicked off in early fall 92, with 22 episodes wow. and unfortunately yeah that's a big a big jump but i honestly i think they produced all of those episodes at once and they just released what they had available to them that makes the most sense right. um but it's unfortunate because season two's final four episodes actually went unaired on abc because they shifted the series uh to the family channel which was cable uh or basic cable season two Uh, became a mix of hour-long episodes and two-hour movies. In one special episode, Harrison Ford actually reprised his role to narrate a story from his teenage years in Chicago, uh, which is one of my favorite episodes, actually. Um, And airing from 94 to 96, a third season on the Family Channel consisted of four movies, which stopped using the old man intros and instead either stuck in the era or had a teenage indie narrating a childhood story. Uh, The series saw its final episode with the TV movie Travels with Father. In total, the broadcast version saw 32 episodes, eight of which were two-hour movies. Fittingly, the series ends with the story of Indiana and his father having their falling out, which would be resolved in The Last Crusade. The series was a success for Lucasfilm as it became a testing ground for digital special effects techniques and the production crew would go on to form a bulk of Lucas's creative team for the Star Wars prequels. 
And thanks to Young Indy, Lucas had a stronger grasp on digital effects and had a tight production crew, which he had prior experience with. And uh, to my knowledge, too, it was probably one of the first uh, TV shows to have extensive digital effects, which I'm fairly certain would go on to impact shows like uh, some of the later Star Trek shows and um, X-Files, things like that. Like, the idea that you could have a film studio doing... Uh, I, I wouldn't say cheaper effects, but effects that were faster to produce. Um, and it's it's kind of surprising. Like if you boot up Disney Plus and check out some of the episodes, you wouldn't notice it. But like a lot of the background shots, a lot of the crowd shots, they're not real. But they mm. were able to do these things back in the early 90s. And it's actually very impressive when you look at the series, like how many countries they go to, how like convincing a lot of the stuff looks they the wars the war episodes alone are worth watching just because of how they like can depict world war one on a tv budget um i I will say that the interesting bit looking at the uh, wikipedia is that it debuted the first episode with 26 million viewers and when it ended it was like four million at least the tv show which is weird kind of like a big drop but it really does show you that Mm -hmm. abc family kind of uh I don't know what they did at the time to, like, lower the viewership. But, like, even in the end of season one, they were at 15 million. That's ridiculous. Like, you usually don't keep everyone when you have a TV show like that. So the fact that they – 60 million is a lot back then. Yeah, and I will say from experience that one of the things that really hurt the show were the the presidential campaign at the time because Ross Perot was actually buying – his big thing was buying airtime and he was buying a lot of airtime that would uh, basically preempt the episode. It, they would basically say tonight's episode of the young Indiana Jones Chronicles will resume following this event. And it would be fucking Ross Perot talking about, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to save America. I'm a, well, whatever it is. And then he's done with his hour long speech. And then the episode's already running, which makes no sense to me. Like why even play the episode when I didn't see the first hour? Oh, fucking Ross Perot. I hate that guy. Thank Um, you for ruining young Indy. You idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Um, and that happened too, I think with, um, shows like Futurama, like sometimes they would just preempt episodes so much that it would hurt the ratings and people would be like, well, the last three weeks, have been nothing but preemptives, you know, so like, right. I'm done, <laughs> you know. Uh, baseball would do that too. But um, during the series run, this is the fun show and tell part, uh, there were several tie-in materials. Most notably, the series saw a book series targeting young adults. So I actually, I brought hey. all my young, all my shit. So let's oh see. Oh my so God. Here's the, here's the young adult books. They were like goosebumps. That's what I was going to say. They're like Goosebumps books. Yeah. That's what they remind me they're of. They're cool. Um, and uh, this is my one of my favorites. He survives the Titanic. So oh. That's fun. Wow. Uh, here's one. The Princess of Peril. And uh, yeah, there were 15 of these. And then there were uh, eight Choose Your Own Adventure books. And I actually just got these off eBay for a sweet deal. They're like brand new. Uh, and so these are actually based on episodes of the series, but they're like, choose your own adventures. So he'll like die a bunch, which is kind of funny. Um, so if you choose wrong, he just dies. I think so. I'll have to read them. 
Um, and then there were also uh, a 12-issue comic book series, which I have here. And I'll be honest, I got some of these in the last few weeks off eBay because they were, like, super cheap. I got this. The art's actually really good for these. Like, look at this. Who published this? Nazi. Uh, Dark Horse. Oh, okay. Yeah, the art is awesome in these. The covers are really cool, too. Um, and then there were also... What else do I have? There was a trading card collection, which I have a sealed I, box of here. I didn't know you were a young Indiana Jones collector. You got me. Uh, <laughs> there's the TV guide, which is a fun one. And then two other books I have. Actually, I have three more books. I didn't put it in the notes. There's a kid's book called The Mummy's Curse, which you could you could win this by... Um, eating applesauce you see that oh nice so if you eat some moths is that how you got it no i actually got it off ebay like last week for three (laughs) dollars um then there's this one which is weird it's the first of a series that never kicked off um for adults and it's an adaptation but what's interesting is it's actually written by james lucino who became famous with star wars books later on he did Darth Plagueis, which is a, one of the best Star Wars novels in the last, like, 20 years. And then, uh, yeah, then lastly, and this is a big one, um, this is the Making of book, which has behind-the-scenes pictures like George Lucas with a broken arm oh, on the nice. set. Um, and what's really cool about this is this book was actually written by Dan Madsen. I have him here, and there's actually a picture of me with Dan. I met him uh, a couple years ago. And oh. he is, um, he's actually a really cool guy. So what he did was he was the founder of both the official Star Wars fan club and the official Star Trek fan club. So like oh the fact God. that one, one guy can be responsible for those two things. Um, he is the only person to have taken a picture of Gene Roddenberry and George Lucas meeting. They met at a convention and he was there and he took a picture um, he was the editor-in-chief for the Lucasfilm magazine, which became Star Wars Insider, which is still running. And he's actually in The Phantom Menace as a cameo. He is um, the guy helping Jar Jar off of his his creature at the end. He's the, they did, uh, him. They he's, did him dirty. I, well, you know, he, <laughs> he he's proud of that. Um, I he's mean, got, he'll, he'll how sign... Many- Sorry, I was going to say, how many people of us have, like, a cameo in a uh, high-budget movie? I mean, I would be proud of it, too. Even if I was, like, getting hit by a car in an embarrassing way in a movie, I'd be like, that's me right there. I'm in the Fast and the Furious 10 getting hit by Vin Diesel in the first five seconds of the movie. Right. Right. (laughs) So, um, yeah, but he's he's a really awesome guy. Um, He's a little person, so he... uh, he deals with, um, you know, some some things, but like the mere fact that he is so like prevalent in fandom and doing all these amazing things and um, you know writing all these books and doing all this like interviews and reporting, like he's the only person who chronicled the Indiana Jones Chronicles. So like my hats off to him, um, and I actually have been talking with him in in the DMs. 
So hopefully he will provide some more information for me. Uh, I'll get into that in a little bit in the notes. Um, but now, all right, here we are. What we were all waiting for, in addition to all of this stuff, all of these DVDs and books and, 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 and everything, they actually made it, George. They made the video game. Yes. What? So... Despite Harrison Ford's indie having several video games, Young Indie technically only had one. There is, and I have to thank Angry Video Game Nerd, he did a new episode. There actually is a, I think it's a PC CD-ROM game on the VHS, or the, the DVD set. But this is the only commercially released video game for the series, which is kind of wild. Um, and the game... Basically, it, it was originally titled Young Indiana Jones, and then they changed it to Instruments of Chaos starring Young Indiana Jones, and the game was released, as we mentioned, to the Sega Genesis in 1994. The storyline is actually really simple. During World War One, which takes place around the TV series' second season, Indiana Jones is a spy who's doing work for agents who intercepted shortwave radio transmissions from Germany. German spies were dispatched to buy the finest military weapons technologies from scientists around the world. So Indy is sent to four different countries' contact points in order to block the technology sales and neutralize the German agent. Um, And each country has, like, its own contact. You never meet them. So there's all these guys called, like, Ian and Ali and Chang, but they don't matter because you never see them. They're just names. Um, and it, it's, that's it. Like, it stars Indy. There aren't really any secondary characters outside of the, the, the names at the beginning of each mission. Um, yeah. And and I guess in, in my, I don't want to, like, sound disappointed from the get-go, but I was disappointed because none of the characters from the TV show are in it outside right. of young Indy himself. So his dad's not there, his mom's not there, his tutor's not there, his friend from World War One is not there, Remy. Um, but as far as the stage proje- progression and story, uh, there's a map, you pick it, and you go to whatever stage you want. What are your thoughts about games that let you pick the stage? Like there's a non-linear um, element to it. I actually personally like it if it's well designed. Um, my, one of my favorite, right. like being young, was like, being able to pick your own robot master in uh, Mega Man, that always blew my mind. Mm. It's like, oh, wait, it's not like Mario. You don't just go to the next level or Sonic. You just go to the next level. It's literally you pick who you want to play. And part of the game is figuring out what order you're supposed to do it in. That that always blew my mind. So um, I like it personally if it's done well, of course. Yeah. Uh, Quackshot did it. Ghostbusters mm-hmm. did it. Mega Man famously did it. Um, there's times when it becomes annoying because you'll play through a whole stage and at the end you're like, oh, I needed to finish that other stage to get that item to progress. But if they're a good game, they will give you a checkpoint and then you can come back and just continue from where you were. Um, as far as this game, then, there's five stages. Each stage has between two or four acts, which is kind of odd, like... Not every state... Like, imagine Sonic, and it's like Green Hill Zone, 4X. Chemical Plant Zone, 1 Act. <laughs> you know, like, oh, okay. 
that I, I don't know what to expect now. Um, the levels themselves are overrun, and by overrun, I mean like insanely crowded with animal enemies, and uh, and sure, like animals and insects are prevalent in the franchise. But to be honest, the amount you see in this game is absurd. Uh, everything from scorpions to birds to crabs, they all attack Indy at all times. You can't stand still because you're going to be attacked by animals. Uh, there's also human enemies, which are far more forgiving, but still offer a bit of a challenge. Personally, uh, during the Big Ben level, I found the construction workers really annoying because they have jackhammers that make you fall through the game scenery and die. Um... And, uh, yeah, it's it's brutal. What are your thoughts on animal enemies in video games? <laughs> um, I think they were used a lot in the 90s, and I, I'm obviously thinking it's because uh, killing humans was probably, like, more frowned upon when it comes to uh, ratings. That's that a they, good point. They probably, like, we had the... Everything was either a robot, alien, monster, slash animal. I... Personally, I'd rather not hit animals. Um, I, I mean, at the time, it doesn't matter. You know, when you're a kid, you don't really, you know, put too much thought into it. You're not like, I'm hitting this animal in the game. So, you know what I mean? Like, you, you're in real life, I wouldn't hit an animal, obviously. But in a game, why not? If right. I mean, when it's it. like a bird or a crab, it doesn't really bother me. But I'm, it's like, like if it's a game where there's like a dog running a at you. Or a cat, and you shoot it, and then it becomes like a crumpled mess on the floor, covered in blood. You're like, "Oh my god, what did I do?" Um, <laughs> it's like, but it cries while you hit it. <laughs> it's. I, I think that's a good point, probably to get around the violence. I think what's odd, though, the games where it becomes overwhelming, and you know, it's like there's that joke in the Jekyll and Hyde NES game where it's like, "Why are all these animals attacking this poor guy? Like he's just walking to his wedding." Right. And it's like birds, and it, it it makes no sense, and yet people are happy for a good two decades to make video games where a bulk of the enemies are just animals. It's so odd. Um, thankfully, if you want to kill these animals in this game, you have three weapons. You have your gun, which fires in three directions. You can go... Uh, there's your whip which honestly I think is a pretty cool element to the game. It's a very fluid rope animation. Mm. Uh, kind of feels like Castlevania. Um, so you can go like, you know, spinning around. And then there's grenades, which prove useful with bosses and like the Big Ben section. Uh, there's also puzzles, which is very fitting for the franchise, but the uh, aforementioned enemies make solving puzzles very difficult because you're just trying to hit a thing with your whip or climb a ledge and, like, birds keep attacking your head. Um, often, Indy has to travel to the top of the stage to destroy things, but getting there can be a nightmare because, again, the birds... Um, the whip can be used to swing and climb, which is a mechanic that is actually really well implemented, in my opinion, um, in the best part of the game. Like, it's it, it, it's no, like, you know, AAA <laughs> game, right. if, if those existed at the time. It's no Castlevania, but it, it works really well. Like, you whip upwards, and you'll hook onto something, and then you climb up. You whip sideways, and you hit a little thing, and you can swing across. It works really well, but again, the problem is, 
you keep getting hit by shit and you keep falling. Um, climbing's a little slow and you can be open to attacks when you're climbing, which is, I think, the big reason why it's a big problem. Um, but at this point, you kind of see where I'm going with this. The game is honestly too difficult to be enjoyed. On one hand, it's a decent platformer with fun methods of moving around, but on the other hand, you have way too en many enemies who never leave you alone. Um, as far as bosses, they're actually really easy, like almost in a comical way. You, you show up on a stage, you see this German agent meeting with a scientist, you throw a grenade and they're done. Like, that's it. The only thing is that if you let them get away, then it's like, oh, Indy lost, but you can continue your adventures. It's like, oh, okay, I lost, but you let me beat the stage. Um, there's also, like, some really weird environmental obstacles, like in the desert one, you can be blown back to the beginning of the stage by the wind. Um, and there's also, like, platforms that, of course, will break, which is always annoying. Uh, to be honest, like, in preparation for this episode, I played the game first as much as I could, just without any codes or cheats or anything, and it was really difficult. And then I turned on the um, action replay uh, code, or the Game Genie code for Invincibility, and it was a fun game. Like, it wasn't great, but, like, if I had rented this and it had none of those enemies, I would have enjoyed it. So... I guess, what are your thoughts on ROM hacks? And I know we just recently had the Ghostbusters video game guy come on who improved the, the game that was already a good game, but what are your thoughts on like ROM hacks to make games that used to be just too difficult or accessible, accessible? And do you think maybe in this case it could probably help this game? I, I like them. I actually am a big fan of ROM hacks. Um, I uh, I have a EverDrive, so I will mm -hmm. go in and uh, play some of the ROM hacks, especially in the Sonic community, which is like super popular for ROM hacks. I think some of them are actually very brilliant. Um, mm -hmm. And I hope we get more in the future, which I think that's what it's looking like because... I don't know, every time I wake up and there's like, this guy's like, we, this guy translated or ROM hacked this game and now made, and added new characters and new levels and you're like, wait, what? Alright, I'm in. So there's people putting a lot of effort and love for no money <laughs> to make some of these old games playable again and uh, it's very interesting, I like it. Yeah, me too. And Unfortunately, I don't think this game's ever going to get the um, the attention like Ghostbusters did. I don't think anyone's going to be like, oh, I'm going to make a no-animal-enemies version of Instruments of Chaos. But if you're listening and you're, you're able to do that, like, do it. Because this game, especially the desert stage, like, I got to the second stage where you're breaking into a temple, and it's kind of fun, you know, and... I think when you learn about the development process, you're at least I feel a little more forgiving towards the game now. Um, so let's let's talk about how we get there, or how we got there. So um, the game's developers and the development process, there were two developers credited for Instruments of Chaos, and by two developers I mean two studios, not two people. Oh. Uh, there was Brian A. Rice Incorporated, and then Waterman. Design And if you saw at the top of the show, I called him Watermelon Design. Uh, that's actually a mistake that came up in my research for it. Um, and and I'll, I'll tell the story in a second. But Waterman Design, 
is described as a graphic design studio and video game production house. However, Instruments of Chaos is the only game to their name. At their height, they had a staff of eight designers, and they produced tech support, creative writing, and design consultation to clients. The company was focused on package design, brand, and style guides, websites, and game design. And oddly, their Chicago address is an apartment building (laughs) that has since been torn down, and I... I always get a kick out of, especially the local ones, where I'm like, oh, there's an address. And, you know, we've seen on this show before, we've we've called, like, old studios, and it's like a karate class is going right. on. You're like, what is this? This is karate for kids. What do you um, think about the estimate? A million dollars, and there's nothing there. That's The, yeah, toilet, right? that's, the toilet is that's worth chi- a million. That's land in Chicago, man. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's gone. But it was just an apartment building. Um, I actually reached out to Waterman Design, and I actually got Mark Waterman himself, who is in the game's credits. Um, he runs a website now called H2O Man. Oh. And it's, I don't want to be mean to the guy, but he didn't answer my emails after we talked a little bit. It just looks very, I don't know what it is. Like, oh, if you look man. at this, it's. Let me Let me load it up. It's taking forever to load, though. Yeah, it does take a little bit. It's, um... All right. He creates... So I think what he does is he creates puppets that you can rig for videos, like informational videos. Oh, I see. And I I think it just kind of threw me, because I'm, like, looking at this, I'm like, what is this? It's such a strange... I don't know. (laughs) So... Uh, obviously, I was very confused about what he did, so I reached out to him. I emailed him, and I said, uh, Hi, I was curious. Was your company originally Watermelon Design? And he goes, No, it wasn't. Cheers. And then I wrote back, and I'm like, Thanks. I just realized I meant to type Waterman Design because my computer kept autocorrecting to Watermelon. Right. Um, and I said, uh, You had nothing to do with... Uh, I said, you had nothing to do with the Indiana Jones video game, I assume. He said, oh, that I did. This is Waterman Design as it exists today. And then I left this, maybe it was a little too long, but I was just kind of excited. I was like, ah, thank you. I'm running a history, blah, blah, blah. He never replied. He's like, Psh. <sighs> So, that's that unfortunate. You, how did that make you feel? You don't mean I'm like, dude, well... It's not meeting my hero, but it's like, dude, how many people are reaching out to you? Maybe that's why he was kind of grumpy, because it wasn't, like, a job right. for his, like, no offense, dude, but, like, weird service, <laughs> you know? like His little um, VTuber uh, 3D models? Yeah, I guess. So what he does is he creates story videos using digital puppets and text-to-speech. Um, what? Why not just AI? Like, there's literally AI that could sound more natural than, like... Is I it using, know. like, Siri? Um, yeah, it sounds like Siri. Oh. Uh, but anyway, he, he didn't answer my questions. Um, I really wanted to talk to him. And I'm not trying to be mean to the guy. I was just kind of confused about, like, what he does now. And I want to talk about it, but whatever. Um, uh, credits list him as creating graphics and animation alongside a, a team of six other artists who I presume are the other people who worked at his uh, small studio. The other developer was Brian A. Rice Incorporated, who was actually founded by... Can you guess who the founder of Brian A. Rice was? 
Bryony Rice. Yes, you got it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Brian got his start developing educational software for the Apple II before expanding to console games for Sega and Activision. The games he created included Slaughter Sport, Home Alone, this game that we're going to be we're talking about, oh Shanghai 2, Dragon's he- Eye, Why? Iron Helix. What? Did I name a game you didn't like? Uh, Home Alone? I remember that game. Uh, dude, I have be so nice. many... So when I was younger, my mom bought me a Home Alone 2, so not the first one. And I made it my life mission, since I liked Home Alone 2 so much, to beat the game Home Alone 2. And that game is ridiculous and makes no sense. It has nothing to do with the movie. It's another one of those weird games, but yeah. <laughs> right. In the hotel, right? Yeah. And then I think Home Alone 1, which was him, that was like in the sled outside, I think. If I remember. And then you went to neighbors' houses and set traps, maybe? I think so. I don't remember. I don't, I, think, I don't think I played the first one ever, just the sequel. But he also, and this is interesting, was working on an unreleased Myst game for the Mega LD Laserdisc system. And he worked on the uh, Myst game port for the Sega CD. So um, I actually have his website here at archive.org we can check out. Might take a moment to load just because it's archive.org. But you can right. see Brian here. It's an older website. There's his picture. Um, oh, yeah. That's... It's party time. <laughs> Is that what it says? Where? Oh, it's oh. just if you scroll oh. down, there's. He, oh, he did a, I see. a website for like a shoe company. Um, he worked on software called Destabilizer Pro. So, you know, it's. Uh, if you go into his resume, which I also have a link to, yeah, it's up. It's uh, pretty extensive. Um, there's a lot to look at here, but I want to call out one that got me really excited. Um, he, he, and one other person developed Space Harrier for the IBM computer. Mm, let me see. Isn't that isn't that cool? That's, I mean, that's, oh, I see. It's under, uh, well, it's not under Sega of America. Where is it under? It's under Mindscape. He also made Willow, oh. the video game, for the IBM PC. Wow. So, okay, so, so. I, is that an official thing? Like, I, I think we talked about this in another episode, but, like, are these IBM computer ports ever, like, did somebody just make them and publish them themselves online? No, or they're, no, they're official. Sega, uh, you know, remember back in the NES era, they were licensing stuff out even when the Mega Drive was in the works and Master System. They were happy to make a little extra cash on other platforms. I don't think the IBM was competing with them, so they saw it as just a way to make some money. But um, I have a video here, actually, of Space Harrier for the IBM that uh, Brian co-developed. You can check it out. I'll pl- I'll play it in the back. Wow, the Sega logo is horrible in the beginning. By the way, it's like yeah, it's pretty wild, huh? <laughs> it's like one. All right. And then you can see his name there, programmed by David R. Mattern and Brian A. Rice. Nice. And look, he he got the waving. It says ready, not get ready, but whatever. Oh my god, never mind, unplayable. I mean, let's let's be real. This is the IBM. You know, like it's it's not gonna be great. 
but I think the colors look nice. You know, you got to look at the positives. Do you think that like um, those early Sega arcade games have been like ported say as a Sega game been ported mm-hmm. to the most like consoles of all time like IBM oh, yeah. and like ridiculous amount of consoles that they you know computers you never even heard of. Well, have you ever read the Hardcore Gaming 101 Sega arcade books? They they'll show a whole page of every port and it's just astounding to see right. Space Harrier. And but what I what I I just got excited cuz I'm like, "Oh, Space Harrier." And I got even more excited because this dude lives near me. Like I could meet him. And I was like, "Wow, young Indiana Jones, but even more so Space Harrier." missed canceled laserdisc version like there's a lot of cool stuff i went to my um ken horowitz sega books i did not see brian's name mentioned so i'm like no one's talked to this guy so i emailed him i visited his facebook page and unfortunately i only saw uh memorial messages so he passed away early last year which absolutely devastated me because i'm like this wasn't like five or ten years ago. This was a year ago. Like, if I only had thought to talk about Indiana Jones two years ago, I probably would have caught him. Um, but I did contact his sister, and she replied back. Um, she told me that she did work with him for a number of years on some of his projects. And in her words, she said he would have loved to have a conversation with you. He was very generous and an enthusiastic person loved helping others so it's i mean it's sad because you see waterman no offense waterman but like brian is the was the type of guy who would have been like oh this person loves my weird indiana jones game my rinky dink ibm game my canceled laserdisc game let's talk about it and then waterman is sitting there he's still alive and he's not answering my emails who do you want to be, George? Do you want to be a Brian A. Rice, or do you want to be a Waterman? I want to be a Waterman because I want to sell cool VTuber. Uh, and I want to be like a rock star, you know? Somebody emails me, I'd be like, I would put like, sorry, I have no time to be talking about video games right, right now. I'm over but it. But like, I'm not trying to be mean to the guy, but like, Waterman, obviously you're not watching this. But if obviously. you were... He doesn't even if reply you were, to emails. You, you were a part of video game history, like it or not. Someone, a loser who has a little YouTube channel, is reaching out to you, wanted to talk about it. Talk to me. Come on. I'd talk to someone. If someone said to me, hey, Barry, I saw on your website that you de- you designed the DVD release for the failed uh, uh, <laughs> reboot of The Prisoner, starring, uh, God, what's his name? Caviezel, who... Who I think played Jesus or something in Passion of the Christ, and um, who else was in it? Uh, oh my god! The guy I who played never even heard of this. Is this the, the anyway, 2009 one? Yeah, I I developed I designed the DVD box set for it, and it got canceled. Now, if a Prisoner fan reached out to me and said, "Oh my god, I'm a huge fan of the Prisoner. Tell me about this. I, I'm yours. I'll tell you all about it. It's not that interesting." But I get it. And it's unfortunate to me that there are people... Ian McKellen. And I actually had... I deleted it not too long ago. But I had the the raw files for a billboard because they gave me all these image files. I had, no joke, 
a billboard size file of Ian McKellen's face. And it was, <laughs> I, if I printed that? it out, I just had it, but it was like five gigabytes. I had to delete it. It was taking up space on my computer. Um, you, you know the DVD is rare, right? It's $52 on Amazon. Oh, well, I was going to make the special edition, which never happened. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess the lesson here is that if you are in the industry, you worked on anything, someone reaches out to you, reply back. Give them, just throw them a bone. Like, answer some of their questions because not many people are talking about this stuff. And unfortunately, and, and as Ken talked about in his uh, uh, Sonic and Sega Fan Jam uh, panel, these people, they're passing away. You know, people are dying because it's, it's an old industry now. It's its turning into the film industry where we have the silent film stars, you know, like, I remember talking to Chaplin before he passed away, he told me. you know, It's crazy so. that uh, the founder of Sega is still alive like 99 or something. And, and you know, like, you... If you talk to him, he'll tell you a story about his childhood, and it's just like young Indiana Jones. He'll be like, I remember Theodore he Roosevelt. Didn't he fight, like, in World War II, I'm pretty sure. So it's like... Yeah, he did. That's I pretty think so. old. Yeah, it's pretty pretty old. Pretty old. Um, But yeah, I mean, I don't know. This is kind of a me thing, but I'm wondering if you are at all fascinated by small studios, where it's like two guys. Like what do you yeah. think of those? <laughs> I think it's a crazy time in our uh, in the industry where two people and I, I, there's still indie games that do this, but like in like back then, like the guys from Cuphead were brothers, right? Like they right. did the game. It took them like twenty years to make, um, right? But like back then, they had to turn these out, so it was this weird like. We got six months. I'm sure if they had five years, they would have been able to release a better thought out game, but. I really do like the uh, small, you know, indie studios like that. And I think it's uh, something that the mainstream uh, isn't going to have anymore ever again. Um, no, at least for like big companies. All. Yeah, like you, you're not going to have Yuzuzuki uh, you know, and some other guy working on a game and releasing it on like just as a downloadable. Even those little downloadable games are like 20 people plus. I mean, yeah. Right. Yeah, and I mean, this game was maybe a dozen people total, uh, two small studios in the Chicago area um, working on it. So, I mean, as as far as future plans for me, I'm going to, after the 4th of July holiday, which you might hear blowing up behind me every right. now and then, um, I'm going to try to put together just a short article or, or whatever it turns out to be based on what um, both Dan Madsen comes back to me with and also what... Uh, Brian's sister comes back to me with because you know who knows what if any little morsels they'll they'll reveal but I just feel like I have to get it out there I wasn't able to get it in time for the show but um, it definitely will be a written piece on the website sooner than later um, but let's let's talk about the the development a bit more here so based on early builds of the game and that's really all we have to go off on right now because Waterman's not answering my emails. Uh, work began in 1992. However, if you follow the TV series, uh, the publicly available builds of the game kind of changes with the series. So contrary to what I see a lot of people say online, uh, the young Indiana Jones branding, and I'll show you what I'm talking about, did not come later in the series. So this is actually a TV guide promoting the series. Now, if you look at that, 
This is the branding we see on the video game. This is 92. This is 94. It's the same kind of logo. But if you watch the TV series, and we saw that in the intro, this is the logo they used. And so they kind of used both of them depending on what it was. Like this was like a little side adventure, not adapting the TV show. This is based on the TV show. So hmm. in my mind, what it was was that this game through development, they were originally going to call it uh, the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Then they jumped around to Young Indiana Jones. Um, and then basically the uh, TV series was reworked into 22 90-minute movies, which we'll get into later. And they called that one Young Indiana Jones. And I think in the end, they just landed on calling this Instruments of Chaos starring Young Indiana Jones. Um, and it's it's an all right title. I, we'll, we'll get into which version we like first. But just looking at these um, prototype ROMs, uh, first one coming up here is from Noiseland Co. YouTube channel. And I have it time-stamped. It should jump to 2 minutes 30 seconds. That's right. So you can see here, like, it uses the branding that you would see, like, on the novels. And you can see, like, there's a different option screen if you've played the game. Uh, the main character sprite looks a lot more like the Indiana Jones in the films. The title of the game is... You know, very simple. It's just take off that Instruments of Chaos and you got young Indiana Jones. But then there's another title which looks like the TV series with the spinning globe, which is interesting. Right. So it's like they, I, I think they were probably giving options. They're like, do you want it to be after the TV series name? Do you want it to just be called Young Indiana Jones? And uh, as we'll soon see in his playthrough, I think at around 3 minutes 30 seconds... You can see that sprite. It looks like Indiana Jones. You know, he's got the yeah, he's got the brown jacket. He has a blue shirt, which is not something Harrison Ford wore, but it and, is something that and the rope and like I mean, the whip is like ridiculous. It's kind of cool, right? I like it. It has like a weird physics effect to it, where like it, when you move yeah. it around, it's supposed to like I don't know. I've never seen anything like that on the Genesis, to be honest. Yeah, so the whip is, like, the the basic whip animation's animated. Like, you can see that it's the same shape every time, but if you stand and hold it down and move your arm around, it's, it becomes this, like, animated black stripe, which is really cool. The um, leaping is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, leaping's kind of insane. <laughs> He's... <laughs> um, yeah, and then... What are you, so what are your thoughts on the title? So there's Young Indiana Jones, The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, or Instruments of Chaos, starring, and as the title shows, dot, like, dot, 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 starring Young Indiana Jones. Which one's your preferred title? Uh, the, the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, because it kind of makes it like, it's like stories of Young Indiana Jones, right? That's the point of the show. I think right. it would make sense. I think it would have been made sense for this uh, thing to have like different sprites of different eras of Indiana Jones instead of just like. To be honest with you, if you, if you just call this the Indiana Jones game and didn't say right. he was young, you would you wouldn't know the difference. To be honest, that's what I find interesting. Yeah, because it's like 
it doesn't jump around the timeline. There's no old, there's no like little boy. It's just teenage indie, but teenage indie, at least in this build, looks like just Indiana Jones. So why didn't, I don't know why they didn't just call it Indiana Jones and then just say this adventure takes place during World War One. Um, it's odd. But right. as development of the game continued, uh, there was this worldwide scope, and the game was to have six levels with indie visiting countries in Europe, Asia, Africa, and South America. And the South American level was going to be in Peru, but the stage was cut. So there is an early build that does feature a broken version of the game, which we can see here again in that what same time? video, but it jumps ahead to... Uh, 23 minutes, 50 seconds. So you can see the new title screen there briefly. Let me see. 50 seconds? 23 minutes, 50 seconds, yeah. Alright. So you can see, like, the, the map there. But what's interesting, when he gets to the map, notice that South American one. It's all the way to the lower left there. Mm-hmm. And then the other stages are all on the other continents. And by cutting the Peru level, the map has an awkwardness to it because it's a world map, but all five stages take place on the right side of the screen, and you can't select any of the Americas. It's not like they even unlock later. Um, so the result is all the stages taking place in the upper right hand it's honestly just probably a sign of the development team not having the time or resources to really make a new map screen right. after deleting a stage. Um, but it is interesting too because, as as you saw there, like you know, development continues. They have a very long release title: uh, India Instruments of Chaos, starring young Indiana Jones. Um, Indy's sprite was reworked, so they did away with the iconic leather jacket and instead put him in a vest, which makes him look less like Indiana Jones. Um, the series did have young Indy, like on the TV show, wearing outfits that match the film look, so there was no real reason to change it unless it was notes from Lucasfilm. Um, but yeah, so in the end, you have a game that has him not dressed as Indiana Jones, you technically it's titled Instruments of Chaos, right. whereas every single Indiana Jones adventure is Indiana Jones and the blah blah blah. Right. So I don't know why it was not called Young Indiana Jones and the Instruments of Chaos. And <laughs> that's the biggest selling feature for the game. Like right. it's the licensed game about Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. It's a. Uh... Like, didn't they make a newer one on the Wii or whatever? It was called, um, what's it called? Something and the... Oh, Staff of Kings. Indiana Staff Jones and the Staff of Kings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, Can yeah. you imagine they called the Staff of Kings starring Indiana Jones? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's so dumb. Like, it's... It's not like with a Batman game, you can get away with putting Gotham in the title first because Gotham's just as recognizable as Batman. Or uh, Boba Fett or Luke Skywalker is more important is just as popular as Star Wars as a title but Instruments of Chaos is the subtitle but it's at the beginning and then your character sprite does not look like Indiana Jones it looks like some guy wearing a brown hat right i don't know um the game was seemingly meant to have a quick turnaround with a date of 1992 in mind however the final bu builds 
were dated January 1994, so it's likely that the game saw a delay of more than a year. And it's also possible that the development team just stopped working on it for a while and then picked it up again. Um, A Sega CD version was also planned with a public showing at the summer CES of 1993 and a release date of July 93. And the CD version was going to have 18 tracks of studio recorded music. And if you remember how good that Sega CD music was, like it would have been epic. Um, (laughs) What we did get though, and I I didn't pick any music out, but the music in this is like, it's very unadventurous. It's very un-Indiana Jones. If you heard that um, opening titles to the TV series, none of that's there. Uh, yeah. Um, not even the logo. We we saw that title screen. There's no young Indiana Jones logo. It's just kind of at the bottom. Very odd. Uh, Instruments of Chaos, starring young Indiana Jones, released to poor reviews, averaging a 40 out of 100 on Sega Retro, with the German gaming magazine Maniac giving it a 15 out of 100. Wow. And Brazil's Super Game Power giving it a 66 out of 100, which was the highest score it received. Very, very Um, satanic score. Yeah. (laughs) What I find funny here, despite it never seeing a European release, several European publications reviewed the product. They imported it, which meant that there was probably a big interest in the territory of a game taking place in Europe. Right. But they never released it in Europe. Who would have thought? Right, like, it's a worldly game taking place in Europe with a a brand that is worldwide known. The TV series actually famously aired in Europe to the point where they actually took, I think, later episodes and released them there, but not over here. So, like, the series was popular over there, but I guess they didn't get the video game. Um, I've seen some people say that the game released after the series was canceled, but that's not the case. Uh, This came out in March 1994 and the TV series moved to the family channel that year and actually had TV movies releasing over the next three years so what is the it, family it wasn't channel? A, I never heard of that it, the, the family channel turned into something else um, I mean if we want to look it up we could actually I that's what the internet so for. the family channel became oh, I guess it's an American TV network founded in 1990 later Fox mm-hmm. family channel then ABC it's, family. it's Freeform. Freeform. It's now. called Freeform now. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. is a dumb name too. And the logo Freeform is so lame too. But I, I I distinctly remember when it was the ABC Family Channel and then I I forgot that Freeform became it. But yeah, it's I mean it was kind of a downgrade for them to shift it over to there, but I think they just you know how network television is, like they're very picky about what fills their slots and they just probably didn't want any more our two-hour-long shows taking up their airtime. Um, in 1996, or actually I should say, uh, Instruments of Chaos was the final tie-in material, um, but it wasn't released after the series ended. However, in 1996, Lucas hired editor T.M. Christopher to revisit the series and edit 22 feature-length episodes. Uh, each chapter consisted of two episodes, unless the original episode was already feature-length, and the dates of the events took place were altered to fit chronologically. Um, Often, there were new scenes between the two episodes bridging the stories. Uh, So he actually went back and 
reassembled the entire cast like five or four years after the series was filmed and had them film new scenes in character to tie the episodes together. Um, One interesting fact is that some of these scenes were actually filmed while he was working on The Phantom Menace, meaning at one point, young Anakin Skywalker and young Indiana Jones were in the same country filming. (laughs) Um, And I'm kind of surprised they didn't like go, oh, let's make a one-off TV special where it's young Indy and young Anakin. I don't know. Um, Also, in some cases, extended scenes were used that were originally filmed. So uh, despite this, the new edits are best known to fans for removing the old Indy segments entirely. Uh, Was this a smart move? Did it hurt the series? In my opinion, it's a mixed bag. I think some of the old indie segments are really good and they offer a little more uh, meat to the story because there's a reason why he's telling the story. And sometimes when you watch the the recut versions, it's just a story about something. You're like, well, what's the reason for seeing this? But then old indie's like, I remember I met a woman. And she was so hot, and I never saw her again. And at the end of his like old man story, well, yeah, he, he stands up and she's there. But in the recut one, you never see her because you never see old man Indy. Um, there's some that are not so good. Like, he gets stuck in a tree, I think, old man Indy. Another right. one, a lot of the times he's, like, eating dinner and just telling the story, which I thought was kind of boring. Um, so there's like- a really good one. Uh-huh. I was going to say like what do you what is your overall opinion on uh, the idea that like George Lucas gets so bored that he's like hmm he's like watching his films and he's like you know what I'm going to redo this whole scene again like he does this with Star Wars sometimes where he's like needs more CGI or like I know fans have a very negative opinion online sometimes about this what's your opinion yeah. on that I I think that is the sign of a peak alpha male he doesn't give so? an F. Yeah, well... Yeah, he doesn't give an F, and it's his material, and he'll do whatever he wants. I think it's great. I think it's the opposite of a... I think it's a beta move. He's like... <gasps> no, no. This is not perfect. Alpha. I have to go in and change... Can you imagine if, like, Mm-mm. the... I don't, well, the Beatles are mostly dead, but, like, one of the Beatles is like, you know what? My guitar riff in Hey Jude? Not good. I'm gonna have to go redo the whole riff again. Like, did how, one of them do that? I oh, think one of them did that. Oh my god! One of them went back. That. They did a um. They used AI to recreate John Lennon. Oh, dude! Why? Okay, see. I think Paul McCartney did that recently. He brought back. He he. It was like a lost song that was never finished, and they never recorded his part. So they were like, "I'm gonna go get some AI and stop making my old friends who died." <laughs> make him sing a song again, <laughs> that is kind of creepy though I, I mean at least like the star wars characters aren't real people you know what i mean <laughs> what like it, what, what if happens like if the, george lucas if, dies and his son's what like what if he I, used what if it because he's like an old beetle now and he doesn't really know technology he uses siri and so he's like it sounds just like him it sounds like john lennon and it's like hey jude hey jude and it's like that's Paul, perfect. Sounds just like him. Paul, is that you? Blimey. <laughs> Paul, is that you? <laughs> is that you? <laughs> I just broke down crying. I thought it was him. It was an AI. It was a robot. Um, well, in, <laughs> I, I think the reason he edited them, going back to, to old GL, um, is that he wanted to re-release them on VHS tapes alongside the films. Ooh. So what they planned to do was they were going to release 
they did. They released the original three movies, but they gave them chapters on the sides. And then they released, uh, they were going to release 22 young indie ones that would be chapters 1 through 22. And then the movies were 23 through 25. And one nice touch is actually he had poster art created for each episode or each movie edit that was using, I think, poster artists at the time who had worked on some of the Indiana Jones movie art. So you can see a collection here of the tapes. They look pretty cool. I um, I like, that's my favorite part about the indie series is the uh, movie posters and even the new movie mm-hmm. had a good movie poster, which is... Yeah, they had um, Ansel Adams right. did the artwork and it's like painted. Right. It looks so good. I actually, I actually got the poster. It's on my wall over there and I got close to it and you can see the brush strokes. You can't do that anymore. Exactly Everything's what I was going like to say. Fucking, it's it's Marvel. Same I shit. I mean, I love Photoshop, but it's just Photoshopped heads. But it's like the worst so, Photoshop. Like, it has this like weird filter on it where you're like... Mm-hmm. And then don't you hate it when you see like an old actor and they have no fucking wrinkles and they don't even look like the fucking person? Cause oh, yeah. That's uh, great. But the Harrison Ford stuff, he looks old. He's all wrinkly. You don't give a shit. I love it. Um... <laughs> Unfortunately for Young Indy, who doesn't have any wrinkles, only half of the series released to VHS, with the remaining 11 movies never seeing VHS release. Um, it wasn't until 2007 that three DVD volumes, and I have them all here, released containing every recut movie version of the series, including 11 of them that never had been released. Right. Um the uh, the discs are actually really nice. They uh, don't have any behind-the-scenes materials, unfortunately, but the mad lad Lucas spent an insane amount of money to create, to be quite honest, like really good historical documentaries that accompany each film. So like this is stuff that's like you would see on the History Channel, and in fact, I think he even eventually licensed it to some uh, uh, cable channels to show. Um each disc also includes a virtual journey or journal showing Indy's journey, and there's also a, uh, a CD-ROM video game that I mentioned too. Um, but what I think is just wild is that he commissioned this stuff in '96. And remember, Lucas does all this stuff with his own money, so he commissioned someone to re-edit 22 movies in 1996, and he did not re-release them for 11 years. Like half of the material people never saw. Um, I wonder what and else he's, here this... he's done. Like, I bet you oh. that, like, this is all we know, right? Like, I bet you he has, like, a whole movie series about uh, Jar Jar Binks he... that he filmed in his backyard. No, he, he commissioned, I think, I, maybe I'm wrong, but, like, 50 scripts or something for Star Wars Underworld before he sold to Disney. It's a um, Game of Thrones, like, level epic show with, like, you know, this was before Mandalorian, and he just couldn't afford it, but he did pay all of these people to write scripts. He also um, what do commissioned you th- a... Well, I was going to say, what do you think about uh, like George Lucas giving... like I, The rumor that when they, they sold Disney to them, that, uh, that uh, George Lucas gave them an outline of what he wanted for this feature of the series, and then Disney was like, nah. And then they just like went their own way. And I think they're slowly coming back to what he wanted yeah, to do. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, the Mandalorian obviously, is a lot like the right. old stuff. Sorry. I th- I think it's unfortunate 
I think he should have put that in his contract, though, because clearly it was like a gentleman's agreement. Like, a, they shook hands, but nothing was on paper. Right. Um, he got he got super rich, though, because people talk about how much he made. That's in stock. That's not in cold, hard cash. So that money just kept making him money. Right. Um, well, he was already filthy rich if he had money to be oh, yeah. uh, re-editing TV shows for no reason. Like... Oh, for sure. And, like, to give credit to the guy, like, he gives a lot of his money to education. He actually built an entire school uh, here in Chicago, like, an entire school building, which is just wild. And he didn't name it after himself. He actually named it after one of the first pioneering uh, African-American directors, which is really cool. So he was like, I don't want my name on it. I just want to, you know, take a nap. (laughs) Um, And so to, to kind of round things out here, the following year... Harrison Ford returned, and this is the following year after the DVDs came out, Harrison Ford returned for what would thought to be the last movie, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and notable to young indie fans, in the movie there's actually a lengthy scene where Indy recounts his adventures from the TV show's first episode, talking about how he rode with Pancho Villa and he fought in the Mexican Revolution, um, which was a really nice tip of the fedora, milady. Uh, two fans of the TV show. And, of course, Indy has returned for his final adventure in The Dial of Destiny, which you can go see right now in the theaters, folks. What? But, um, yeah, we just released it. You wow. You can go to the theaters right now. We just put it out. Nice. Uh, Thanks, George yeah. Lucas. Uh, you're welcome. I didn't. I just executive produced it. I didn't write it or direct it, but that's okay. Wasn't Steven um, Spielberg the one that directed the last four movies? So yeah, Spielberg directed them, but uh, Lucas and Spielberg, I heard, consulted on the story, um, and they were executive producers on it, so they weren't kept in the dark. Lucas was like, hey, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> I didn't tell you to make this. Uh, but yeah, so, I mean, I, I feel like this was largely like just a young indie episode in general, but we did talk about the game. What are your thoughts on the game? Game. Me? Yeah. I have no thoughts. I've never played the game in my life. Uh, I saw the <laughs> I knew footage you online. Um, I, it looks like one of those bad uh, tying games, kind of like Beavis and Butthead, where you're like excited for it when you go to the, the rental place right. and you're like, this is going to kick ass. And then you watch the intro and you're like, okay, this is just like the, the TV show. And then you play it and you're like, no. I made a mistake, a horrible, horrible yeah. mistake. Um, and it sucks because this is like a dime a dozen, like I said, back in the 90s. It was uh, mm-hmm. when you were renting a uh, tying game, you were uh, very in a, in a minefield. Um, so, yeah, I don't really have an opinion on the game as much. I'm sure you have a stronger opinion in the game than I do. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess my opinion on the game would be that it really, in the end, is kind of your typical licensed video game that's not all that good. But I think behind it is probably a very interesting story that we just haven't heard yet. Um, so I'm really hoping that I can hear more from Brian's sister. Um, from what I, it feels like, though, it was a license that was not highly sought after because this isn't Indiana Jones it's young Indiana Jones and it's after the series had already moved to a cable channel in their like third season so like in that regard like yeah it makes sense that 
Um, it probably went to a lesser known developer, but they did have Home Alone under their belt, so that probably helped them get the, the license. Mm. I have to imagine, though, that looking at the small team and looking at the scope that they were going for, they might just have been in over their heads, maybe. Um, you get the sense from the game that they had to cut some elements, probably for time, but also you'll notice that when they cut a level, they never really had the time to change the map. So, And the fact that it took, geez, two years to make this game. Now, I have to imagine that wasn't continuous work, but it probably was a lot of work, considering that Waterman never replied back to my emails. It might have been a sore subject for him. Um, but, you know, it, it, in the end, it's it's a forgettable licensed game that I'm sure has a very interesting story behind it. I will say that if you removed all of the animal enemies, you would have a playable game that is okay, which is high praise, I think, for a development team that was probably stretched thin and making a game that they really weren't prepared for when you look at their resumes. Right. Um, especially Waterman's, which is nothing, <laughs> you know? Uh, so and the whip's nice. And I think in the end, like, Indiana Jones is all about his whip. So if they nailed the whip, then the game's like 10 out of 10, in my opinion. Wow. Um, <laughs> right? So that's my review. Um, and as far as our Patreon pals, we threw this out to them to get some memories. And I don't know, do a lot of people just not have memories of this game? Let's see. Ben Hayward wow. has his memories. So he says... I've dabbled in a couple of Indiana Jones games from time to time, though I do remember watching an Indiana Jones movie in my first year of high school. It was meant to be about studying the film, but I wonder if it was really just because our teacher wanted to watch it. So, yeah, it sounds like he's, he's even less a fan than you, George, and you're, like, not really a super fan, so not who knows what's fan. going on there. No. I think no. Uh, we are... We have issues. I'll admit that. Us uh, indie haters, we have issues. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, yeah, that that about does it. Um, do we have... Do we have a Patreon pick? Let me check. I'm going to check the Google Doc now. You get to pick. I am, Nix. Okay. So, I'm probably going to... I'm probably going to put up a pool for our Patreon. I have a few ideas. Um... What, some of them are going to be very interesting um, that maybe uh, ideas that we haven't done before so if you support us on Patreon you could go ahead and vote for as little as a dollar a month uh, and for our supporters that are listening uh, ch- keep an eye out in the next couple of days for that pool and vote that would be great swim in that pool and that's it for this episode of Sega Talk. Bye. Bye.